everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. Last week, we started studying Romans 5 and released episode number 175, which was a broad discussion of the chapter, as well as two devotional drills videos to help you study the Word in greater detail. This is the beginning of week two, where we're going to study Romans 7. To get started, Nick and Jill will discuss some of the themes that are found in this chapter. Look out for more devotional drills later this week as well. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. My name is Jill Reese, and I'm Pastor Nick's research assistant, and that's who's here with me, Nick Gibson, the lead pastor of High Point Church. Hey, guys. We've been studying Romans 8 in our sermons the last few weeks, and we're studying the chapters leading up to Romans 8 through devotionals throughout the week. So today, we're going to be talking about some themes in Romans chapter 7. Yeah. Yeah, chapter 7 is really critical to understanding chapter um, chapter 8, especially the first part of chapter 8. And it's also um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was one of the great preachers of the 20th century in England set, preached through Romans. He did 144 sermons in chapters six through eight. Wow. And yeah. And it, he said it was his favorite time in his ministry, but he said in his, one of his sermons on chapter seven, that it was the most, most famous and controversial chapter in the entire Bible. Hmm. Wow. Um, and, it, and that's, you know, a bit of an overstatement probably, but, um, but it's not obvious what chapter in the Bible would surpass it because it's, mm-hmm. it, it really deals with them very big issue everybody deals with. And a lot of people are not really sure how to interpret it. And because of that, it can lead people to misunderstand it. And then because they misunderstand chapter seven, they often don't really see how they're supposed to take chapter eight. And eight is one of the greatest, most encouraged, greatest in the sense of the most encouraging chapters in the whole Bible. And so mm-hmm. I, th- we, we, I feel like understanding seven is really critical. Could you briefly say what the issue is that people have with reading Romans 7? Because I think we talked a little bit about it in our overview of Romans 5 through 8. But Mm -hmm. for those who haven't listened to that, could you recap that a little bit? Yeah. The the question in Romans 7, so Paul talks about this experience of wanting to delight in God's law and, and do what's right in his mind, in his will, in his desires, and not being able to do it in his behavior, his actions his life mm-hmm. and that that creates a really big rift inside of him that like he, he, he isn't who he wants to be. Mm-hmm. And yet it feels like what he does isn't even himself. And that like that divide or war inside of us, understanding what that is, how it works, how it functions, where that is in the story of salvation. So one of the biggest interpretation issues here is some people think the apostle Paul is describing himself or someone else before they become a Christian. And then others believe that this is the description of what it feels like to be a Christian. And then there's others like Lloyd-Jones, who I agree with, who believe that this is what it feels like to be a Christian. That is, you've accepted Christ and you've believed in the gospel, but you don't yet understand how the Holy Spirit is part of that inheritance and how Mm -hmm. embracing the Holy Spirit is fundamental to salvation. And that draws you out of the wretchedness and the division, the personal internal personal division that's discussed in chapter seven. Okay, thanks. Because in the book of Romans, you know the word the word for the Spirit or the Holy Spirit is used mm-hmm. 30, 34 times maybe, and twenty two of those are in chapter eight. Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit's only mentioned three times before chapter eight. 
Mm -hmm. So if you just look at just the word occurrences, it's so obvious that chapter eight is an exposition of how the spirit is part of our salvation, what he Mm -hmm. does. And so the end of chapter seven, I think, is setting up even knowing God, even believing in Jesus, even wanting to delight in God's truth without the power of the spirit, we are still a slave to the flesh. And so that's why we need the Spirit so much. And until you understand that wretchedness, the good news of the work of the Spirit just doesn't dawn on you like it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. So I have some questions about the chapter, but do you want to say anything else for context before we dive into those? Well, I'll just feed those in if we need them. I, okay. I think that it, it may, yeah, let's just go for yeah. it. Okay, great. Um, So in chapter seven, Paul refers to, he uses the term the law several times in reference to different things. And so um, I want to ask about that mostly, the theme of the law. So what is Paul referring to when he's talking about the law? Like, Um, Like when he says, what is the context that he is drawing from? that someone might not have if they're jumping in right now. Okay. So there's two sort of horizons to look at the sun. The first mm-hmm. is a law is a highly predictable state of affairs that is going to be the case unless something major happens to make it not the case. Mm-hmm. So in chapter seven, he talks about marriage. When two people get married, they're married. That's the way it is. They're under the law of marriage and they're married until, until one of the two dies. And then they're not married anymore right? Same thing with slavery. If someone is a slave in the ancient world, until that person dies, they are under the yoke of slavery, especially Greco-Roman slavery, unless they can buy their way out of it. But it's a law that continues. And so what Romans 6 says, or Romans 7, but both, well, no, sorry, the beginning of Romans 6 says is that when Jesus died on the cross, when he he died as the God-man, he died as true humanity. And if we believe in him, we are in union with him. And so his death is spiritually counted as our death. And that mm-hmm. death therefore then frees us from the laws under which we were enslaved. And one of the laws in which we were enslaved is the is literally the law of God himself. From the Old Testament. From the, Yeah. And that is, and the law of God that is in the mind of God is inscripturated or told to us in the law, which is in the Old Testament. And, it, mm-hmm. and those laws come to us in what he refers to in chapter six as commandments. So in, okay. later in chapter seven, it says the law on the basis of, on the, on the basis of the commandment. So you'll, you'll see both law and commandment in chapter seven. So he's, he's talking about law generally. Right. And specifically. And then specifically. From the Old in, so then he talks about the law of slavery, the law of marriage. And then he's specifically mm-hmm. talking about the law. The law is the Mosaic law which is Mm -hmm. the law of God revealed in the Old Testament, right? And then when he gets to the very end of chapter seven, he's going to go back to that original definition without telling you because he's going to talk about the law of sin. That is that sin is in us and indwelling sin seeks to control us. And apart from something that breaks that law, that is what will be the case, right? And so when you get to verse 25, I'm sorry, verses 21 to 23, he talks about, I see another law working in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner Mm -hmm. of the law of sin, 
So those uses of the word law in those final verses of the chapter actually broaden it out and you find out that you're dealing with three different laws, right? Mm-hmm. The law of the internal world of those of us who believe, our inner being, the law that there's, there's a law that there's something inside of us that wants God. And that's a real thing. The law of sin is that we are held captive and there's a war being waged against us. That is the law of our mind by this thing called the law of sin. That is indwelling sin is there fighting desperately to control us and often, if not usually wins. Mm-hmm. That is that is as um, expected and as reliable as any law. And so it's a law, the law of sin, right? And then, but then what we read is that in the very first verse of chapter eight, right? It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Mm-hmm. So you see, the, all of that talk about law in the end of chapter seven is all to set up this idea that the work of the Holy Spirit is so expected, so promised, so much our inheritance, so receivable, so reliable, that even though the law of sin, that is your own, that your own flesh, that there is evil inside you that's just always, always, always there and you hate it about yourself, just as reliable as that is the law of the spirit of life that has come to us through Christ Jesus. And so by using the word law for all of this, he's laying down this idea of absolute reliability. Okay. But then he's also going to say that the death of Christ has not only freed you from the penalty of sins, it's actually freed you from the law of sin. The law of sin is like the marriage example or the slavery example, right? Mm -hmm. Because it says the law of the spirit who gives life has what? Set you free from the law of sin and death. So his argument is, you're not only not under the law of, of Moses, right? Right when you realized the law of Moses was good, what really took control of you was the law of sin. That is indwelling sin inside of you that always controlled you, that you couldn't get away from, that was always waging war against you and making you a prisoner, right? Mm-hmm. The law of indwelling sin. And the only law that can free you from that is the law of the spirit who gives life, who freed you from the law of sin and death. So all of that is meant to use that law language to lead you to your your absolute dependent need of the present, the consistent law-like presence and work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And yet that's so, meant to be ironic because the Spirit is literally the opposite of the law. Structurally, the, the Spirit law is literally the The Old opposite. Testament law? Or like the no, law the, generally. The law of the Spirit, yeah, versus the Old Testament yeah. law or the law of the commandment. Yeah. The, there's the, because that's what how... Um, this section starts, right? It says yeah. in chapter seven, verse five, for when we were in the realm or under the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law, that's the law of Moses, were at work in us. Okay. So we bore fruit to death, verse six. But now by dying to what once bound us, that is both in this case, the law of God in the Torah, but that was used by the law of sin to make us slaves and produce death. By dying to that, we have been released from the law, that is the law of God. The, the Mosaic law so that we can serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So serving under the spirit is literally the opposite of serving under the written code, but they're exactly the same in that the law, the spirit is like a law in that he's a hundred percent reliable and he has mm-hmm. 100% authority to do what he has to do, which is to set us free from mm-hmm. the law of sin and death. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So unless you um, enter into the sort of artistic wordplay here, like Paul is using these profound 
images that are meant to evoke mm-hmm. understanding. And if you get very pedantic about the syntax, you won't understand this. You have to like focus on the, what the words say, but then you have to let the words produce the images. And then they, in some ways they interact artistically even. And if you don't let that happen, you can't under, you can't un- understand or interpret Romans seven properly as far as I can tell. That's helpful to me because when I read Romans, it sound it sounds very logical right. in how it's written. And so I do get confused about the different terms that he's using because I think that he's trying to tie them all together um, in a logical right. argument. He is. Yeah, but if you look in every case, he's he's arguing really logically about metaphors. Right. Yes. So, and I don't pick up them. I haven't always until recently Yeah. in talking with you picked up on the metaphor Right. I mean, if you just think about Mm -hmm. Romans 4, it's this the story of Abraham and how the story of Abraham relates to justification. And then in chapter 5, it's the demonstration of God's love through Christ's death. And then in Mm -hmm. chapter 6, it's the first Adam versus the second Adam. So Jesus metaphorically related to Adam, the first man, and how that relates to bondage and freedom from sin. And then Mm -hmm. chapter 6, you've got marriage and slavery and those images. And Mm -hmm. then here you've got all this wordplay with law. So like when you look at it from that perspective, the whole thing is a big artistic flourish Mm -hmm. argued very philosophically. And so, yeah, the interplay between those two makes Romans difficult to deal with. Because if you're a very artistic person, the logic tires you out. And if you're Mm -hmm. a very analytical person, you're like, these words don't make sense. And and it's because they actually don't. In Romans 7 is the place where unless you accept the artistic and metaphorical and evocative nature of the images he's arguing about, Mm And you stay so focused on the syntax and you're like, well, law must mean this in this way and that it, like it literally will make you crazy because mm-hmm. you, it, you cannot make sense of chapter seven in sheer syntax and grammar. You have to let it produce the images and then you have to let the images interact and understand mm-hmm. them in the way he's describing them. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Could you talk more about the relationship between the law, like the old Testament law to sin, um, that's in verse seven, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly right. not. <clears throat> and so he does explain right. it there, but could right. you talk more about what that relationship is? So so what happens here is Paul is making an argument and then he'll say something and then he'll be like, oh, that's going to be controversial. <laughs> right. And so he'll say something that's so in, so in chapter seven and verses five and six, he's, he's writing a conclusion from a sustained argument all the way through the end of chapter five, all the way through to the beginning of chapter seven about mm-hmm. the law basically and how there's this transference and like how death frees you from law. Right. But then he says, for when I, we were in the realm or we were under the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us. Now you realize and so bore fruit to death. So he just basically said, no, the law there means the law of Moses, which is the commands of God. So he just said that when we were under the flesh, the sinful passions, those were actually aroused by the law, right? And then he says, so that we bore fruit to death. So what he's saying is because partly because of the law, our sinful passions were aroused and our life produced death. The way we live produced death. So with that, so now the average Jewish person is like, wait a second, the law is the perfect will of God. Mm-hmm. How can the law arouse sin? Right? And well, I mean, on some level, this is very simple to explain, right? How can beautiful women arouse lust? Beautiful women are just beautiful women. Why would they arouse lust? 
right? Mm-hmm. Well, because lustful men look at the true good of a beautiful woman or like of any healthy woman. And because of their lust, the wholesome thing that is the woman arouses something in them. Now, what Paul says is the command itself is essentially wholesome. Like that's what he gets down. So he, so in verse seven, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And then he says, certainly not. Now, certainly not is the same phrase that's used in verse 13, where it says, did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. By no means in verse 13, and certainly not is the exact same phrase in Greek, meginito, which means may it never be, is what it literally means. It, that's impossible that it could be the case. It's mm-hmm. the strongest possible rejection in the Greek language. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he's like, so, so is the law sinful? No. But what he says is, is that I wouldn't have known what sin had been if it had not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. Meaning that in the human heart, you may have had an inkling that you shouldn't desire something that belongs to someone else. But when the commandment literally says, don't covet, and this is what coveting is, and you must not do that. One, it tells you not to do it, but it also it also gives you ideas. And if you're already a bad person, the bad ideas that it, that it offers you becomes much more focus, the focus of your mind than the thing it tells you not to do. So the commandment becomes like gasoline on the fire of our lusts, right? Mm-hmm. And so he says in verse eight, but sin that is indwelling sin or the flesh, indwelling sin and the flesh aren't exactly the same, but they're, they're very closely related. The flesh is the part of us that's rooted in it. And indwelling sin is a, I don't want to get it. It's an abstract object. It's, it's, a, it's very <laughs> close theologically, but the, you can think so of the two of the one functionally, but they're yeah. not the same, right? Yeah. So what he says is, but sin, that is indwelling sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, right? So when the commandment comes, that is a moment and it produces an opportunity. And in that opportunity, sin seizes upon it. So for example, when God tells Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree in the garden, that's an opportunity. Because before God said, don't eat from the tree, right? Nobody knew it was wrong to eat from the tree. There's no possible mm-hmm. temptation there. The minute God says, don't eat from the tree, the snake has something to talk about. There's the possibility for deception because there's a commandment to deal with. So in this passage, the word commandment is used one, two, three, four, five, six times, all mm-hmm. specifically related to how sin misuses the commandment that's good to produce terrible desires in us, even though the commandment is good. So his conclusion, verse 12 is, is so then the law is holy and the commandments are holy, righteous, and good. Right? Mm-hmm. Which leads to the second rhetorical question. Did that which is good then become death to me? So like, okay, so if you're, so there, cause there's two questions. One, how can the law produce sin, more sinful desires? How can it arouse sinful desires? Right? That's the first mm-hmm. part of the question in verse, in verse five. But then he says that, the law was at work that because that those sinful desires through the law were at work in us, it produced death is what it says in verse five. So now he goes to that second question. Okay, wait. So now does that mean that what is good, that is the law, then become death to me? Was the law death? And he's like, no, Maginito, may it never be. There's no way. He says, but nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what was good, that is sin used what was good to bring about death to me so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So the, the word utterly there is the word we get our word hyperbole from. Hyperbole, incredibly mm-hmm. sinful, completely sinful, totally sinful. That mm-hmm. is only through the commandment can sin be seen for what it actually really is. 
Because as it says in Romans 1, the human heart is naturally a truth suppressor, Mm -hmm. right? So either in ignorance, we don't know what sin is, or in the suppression of the truth, we won't let ourselves know what sin is. And so the commandment is necessary either to teach the ignorant or to confront the truth suppressor so that they can, well, you should really call them truth repressors, so that the the truth they don't want to know, they can't help but know. And so you can see not just that sin is sin, but so you can see just how bad it is. You can see that it's utterly sinful, that it's damnable, that it's hateful, mm-hmm. that it's horrific, that it's completely hostile to God, right? Mm-hmm. The commandment is necessary for that to happen. But what it also means is that that commandment that's meant to lead ultimately to truth and therefore to life also shows the way of death. And if we embrace it, leads us there. So again, mm-hmm. the commandment's intention isn't to bring about death. The commandment's intention is to show us what the way of death and life is. The problem is, is that because of indwelling sin, sin uses the opportunity of the commandment to lead us down the road of death, and we go along with it. So again, mm-hmm. not only does is this is the law not sinful, it's also didn't it's not the law that brought about death in both cases. It is indwelling sin. Mm-hmm. Right, that um, is sinful, and it's indwelling sin that leads to death. And therefore, our big problem that needs to be solved is not the law, but indwelling sin. But what Paul's arguing here is, is that, but in that problem, the problem of indwelling sin is a problem the law cannot solve; it can only reveal. And so, okay, so in this conversation, I, the question comes to my mind: Why did God do that? Why did God give us the law if it wouldn't work? And it seems like you're saying the purpose of it was not so that we could be maximally good on our own, but so that we could see our choice and know that we we can't make the right choice because of our sinful nature. Is that correct? Or like, what what would you say to the argument that the question of why would God Give us the law if it doesn't work. Okay, so there's there's two possible answers to that question. The first is I'm not 100% sure the law can't work. Okay. I know that it doesn't Like work. someone could follow it perfectly. Yeah, I mean, if you actually read the book of Deuteronomy, it literally says in the book of Deuteronomy, the law that I've given you today is not so high up in the heavens you can't grasp it or too low mm-hmm. down the earth you can't go down and find it. He, he literally, God literally says in the book of Deuteronomy, you can do this. Now, remember, in the book of Deuteronomy is the sacrificial system. So there's a way within the law itself to atone for sin, which is perfectly mm-hmm. and finally done in Christ. And in this case, when Paul is talking about the law, he's specifically referring to, referring to the law's commandments, which is sp- specifically, we're meant to assume, I think, the moral commandments like you shall not covet. Mm-hmm. So, it, so here he's specifically talking about the direct moral behavioral commands of the law. And that those alone, when combined with human sinfulness, don't redeem, they just reveal. Okay. However, if Romans 1 and 2 are correct, and the first part of chapter 3 are correct, that human beings are incredibly sinful, much worse than we ever dared dream, and that we're truth suppressors, that is, we won't let ourselves know it, then in order for us to be saved, two things, not one, has to happen. Mm-hmm. One, we have to be f- we have to be faced with what we really are. And two, we have to be offered mercy or some kind of redemption. So in Lutheran circles, this would be referred to as preaching both law and gospel, mm-hmm. right? You have to preach law, 
even today, even though we're, quote, not under the law, you still have to produce law because everybody has to be damned before they can be saved. Mm-hmm. Until a person realizes that they have that they have lived in hostility towards God, they have nothing to commend themselves really, and the good person that they think they are is mostly the product of their own fabrication and suppression of the truth, not that they're actually good people. And when that comes crashing home, then a person says, "Oh, this re-, like it says in verse twenty four, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death?" Right? Mm-hmm. That is not just subject to death; that is mortality but the, but sin's death the the death of of foolishness and wickedness and damnation right who who can save me from this well that's the feeling you have to have before you can be saved so even in the new testament well frankly in the book of romans paul is preaching both law and gospel but he's trying to make clear here is the law can only reveal this problem it can't fix it And so, but the commandment is useful to show the problem and therefore the law had to come so that we could recognize how lost we were. And only then when we become sensible of what we find out in verse, in chapter seven here, can we then turn to Christ himself and then ultimately the law of the spirit of life? Yes. Does that make sense? Yes, that does make sense. Okay. So then Paul goes into the law of the spirit um, and in chapter six, when he talks about slavery, he also talks about being slaves to obedience. So could you talk about the relationship of being a slave to obedience? Is that, is he talking about, is he leading up to the law of the spirit of life in that as well? Are you looking at a particular verse right now? Are yeah. You know? So um, in I'm sorry, I have children so, around me making yeah. noise and stuff, and it broke my concentration <laughs> right. a little bit. Um, I'm, it seems to me, to back up a little bit in my train of thought, it seems okay. to me like there's sort of two threads running through, and there's like righteousness and obedience and the spirit, and then there's the law and sin and death. Like those are two types of threads. And so... In six leading up to seven, as he's making an argument for the law of the spirit of life, I'm wondering how um, in chapter six, um, verse 16, he talks about um, being either a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So is, is that is that part of righteousness he's talking about? Um, is he talking about if we could follow the law or is he talking about the life in the spirit? Like the law of the spirit of life. Tell me the verse again. Did you say 16? 616. 616. Okay. Yeah, that's why mm-hmm. I was so confused. Okay. Um, yeah. Where is it? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that through, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Um, you've been set free from sin, and you've become slaves to righteousness. So I'm wondering, I think, if, he, if the slaves, being a slave to righteousness is the same as being under the spirit, the law of the spirit. Is that the same thing? Yes. Okay. Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. Again, this is issue of like him using different metaphors. And there, see, right. the thing is, is like um, theology is all analogy, right? Because technically most of the things that God is doing are either impossible or mostly impossible for us to describe exactly the way they really are. And so in most cases, God is giving us stuff that's analogical. Like it's, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, so what Paul is doing is he's using lots of different analogies to get us in the right ballpark of understanding. So by using many different analogies, we get closer and closer and closer and closer to the thing itself. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in this case, you're a slave to righteousness in that you are completely obedient to its authority. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. It, it doesn't necessarily carry all the connotations of things like abuse. Or right. that becoming a slave is involuntary, right? Here it's here it's clearly voluntary. So the slave metaphor breaks down, but it is an analogy in that when you are under sin and its slave, you are completely under its authority, right? It had the right to, to control you. But the way it controlled you is different than, than being a slave to righteousness, right? Um, but in both cases, you realize that you are completely under their authority. You give mm-hmm. yourself wholeheartedly to the authority of one or the other. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that that Paul wants us to understand is, is that when we come into the freedom of the gospel, it doesn't, that doesn't lead to antinomianism that we just do whatever we want. We're free then to do the good that we were created to do, Mm -hmm. to live towards what is good, true, beautiful, and glorious. That is that displays the real character of God and honors him. And that's what we're made for. And so in a sense, we are slaves to it, right? In that we're not above morality and truth. Right. Mm-hmm. So we are slaves to them in that sense. Mm-hmm. But it's a much more liberated slavery than many other kinds. Right. It's not like I think we talked about this in another podcast that's going to drop soon that the, that analogy is helpful, but the two are not the same. Right. Yes. Is so sla- the, the term slavery can also feel when it's referred when the um, slavery is talking about the flesh there's also this connotation of compulsion or that you can't, you are powerless to not do that thing. Does that analogy hold true with the spirit as well as in we are compelled, we are more compelled because of the spirit to do what is true and good. No. And in that sense, that's one of the ways, that's one of the ways in which this, analogy breaks down and why okay. Paul has to go to a completely different discussion about how this how we're related to the spirit in chapter eight. Mm-hmm. Because okay. although it's true we move from quote one slavery to another, the reason we're enslaved to sin is we keep trying to disobey it and we can't. Right? The slavery that right. we have to sin is our inability to mm-hmm. free ourselves and our like our abject weakness in doing mm-hmm. what the flesh desires or indwellings and desires. The difference, the, the slavery of the spirit is the fact that our mind actually changes and we want to do what God wants. Mm-hmm. And so the means by which God, quote, forces us is by pers- persuading us and convincing us. So there, there isn't, God needs no whip to make his people do what's mm-hmm. good. So, and one of the one of the ways that God makes us His slaves is He chooses the very best thing there is, and then we want to commit to the thing that He demands we commit ourselves to. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the so the way God creates our slavery 
is to basically define what good freedom is and enslave us to it. Right. Which is very mm-hmm. clever mm-hmm. and very great and wonder a wonderful thing. And that's the mm-hmm. exact opposite. What Satan does is and sin does is it promises us freedom to do whatever we want, knowing that when we do whatever we want, we will become his, we will become slaves to our desires that will not be pointed towards what's good and that will destroy us and lead to death. And so the, by grasping a false freedom, we end up truly enslaved and killed. God does it the opposite way. He demands we become his slaves and in becoming his slaves, we are enslaved to freedom and become free. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's literally, in that sense, it's literally exactly the opposite. Yes. And it's hard to fully understand it's not impossible to understand, but yeah. it, being well, a slave it, to freedom is hard. Maybe maybe it's our culture and our misunderstanding of freedom, but that's hard to understand, I think. Yeah. Well, it gets back to this distinction that I've been saying here for the last year or so at least, which is yeah. when if you interpret the Bible in, in pedantic philosophical terms, a lot of things don't mm-hmm. make sense at all. Mm-hmm. Like in philosophical terms, to be enslaved unto freedom just doesn't make any sense at all. But as a psychological truth, how do you get right. a frail, embodied human being that's full of all kinds of fears and all kinds of things like that to actually be free? How does one do that? And it turns out that enslaving them to righteousness, to force them into <laughs> grappling with what's true and good, mm-hmm. makes them into stronger creatures that can make better decisions and that can really be what they were made to be and can actually live into this thing called the image of God. Once they live into the image of God, they will naturally, like a member of the Trinity, wants to do the will of God because they share that will with God's will. Well, now you don't need any kind of compulsion for them to do what's good and right. And so there is no bond of slavery left other than the bond of their own character that they've naturally embraced. And so though they're technically a slave to what's good, because we all must be, because it's true, we are the freest creature that can possibly be. And that psychological or spiritual development flows through this mechanism God creates. It doesn't matter if you can't make any sense out of it philosophically. It doesn't make any sense philosophically because we're not abstractions. We are people. Mm-hmm. And this is being applied to creatures and people. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't actually technically have to make sense as an abstraction if it properly handles, handles us as creatures. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we are empowered this is what he gets into in chapter eight, but we're empowered by the spirit to, to be more than conquerors and to do the right. the good thing. Right. So, when we come under the law yeah. of the spirit, we are mm-hmm. empowered by the spirit mm-hmm. so that we can then be free because yes. one of the reasons we're so enslaved is because we're so weak. And that's what indwelling sin takes such advantage of. Uh, and that's what Paul calls later in Romans seven, his wretchedness. Our wretchedness mm-hmm. is is that we're not just evil, but we're weak. So we're 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 too evil to grow stronger, and we're too weak to overcome our evil. So who's going to rescue me from that conundrum? And mm-hmm. the answer is the only thing that can is actually God giving a grace, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling you with His power can lead you out of slavery to sin and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because He's as powerful as a new law. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that answers the questions I have about the passage. Did you want to say anything else about Romans 7? Yeah, I think one of the places where what you said I thought could could get convoluted is when you're saying, you know, there's these different lines in the passage of law and yeah. commandment and sin. Okay, so if 
So let's look right here. If you just focus on verses 14 and following. So in verses 7 to 13, the focus here is the relationship of sin to the commandment and whether or not the law is good. Now, most Mm -hmm. people in 2020 are not asking that question. If you have a Jewish background or you're a religious Jew, you might be really interested in that. Most most modern people just don't care. In Paul's Mm -hmm. context, it was a big deal. But one of the ways to think about that is just the moral law, just God's moral law. Not just the Torah, but everything written in the Bible. What What is the use of all those commands? Because the New Testament has lots of commands in it. What's the use of all those commands? Because they can be very oppressive, right? Mm-hmm. What you what you realize is you realize that they're good. You want to do them. You can't. And you actually have more ideas of what bad to do because of all the good things God said to do, right? Well, mm-hmm. what good is that? I mean, sure, shouldn't God have a bigger plan? Than and the answer is yes, he does. But the purpose of those command is to drive you to face your wretchedness. The, every single human being, I believe, who is going to be saved has to personally experience the wretchedness of verses 14 to 25. Mm -hmm. And until you experience Mm -hmm. that wretchedness, I don't think you can be saved because I think, I think recognizing the good of God's truth and realizing you can't do it is necessary to find the humility and spiritual dependence necessary to abide in Christ or to live in Christ, to be in Christ. So in this, in, in this, what I would say is, is to look at two parallels. Okay. Starting in verse 14, the apostle establishes what you might call the self, or to quote verse 22, what he calls his inner being. So you see in, his, in verse 22, he says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Yeah. In my inner being. Okay. Now throughout the, those verses, there's a Greek um, word, thelo, which means desire or wish. Not wish like, I wish I had a million dollars, but like what I wish to do, my desire. And so it's mm-hmm. translated want or desire. So if you look at this in verse in verse 14, right? We know the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Okay, so that's the summary statement he's going to unpack now. Like I, we realize that the law is a spiritual thing, right? But it turns out I'm not a spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. And because I'm not a spiritual thing, I'm sold as a slave to sin. Mm-hmm. Right. It says first. So, and now he's going to explain how, what it feels like. Verse 15. I do not understand what I do. Right. So even right now you have an internal mental consciousness thing and an action understanding versus doing. I don't understand what I do. Right. For what I want, Thela, what I desire, what I wish to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. So you see, I want to do one thing. I do another thing. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. So again, if I do what I don't wish to do, right? So you see the separation between the internal consciousness in relationship Mm -hmm. to what's good and what you desire and then what you actually do, Mm -hmm. right? And he says, now, if I do that, if in my heart I don't want to do it, but in fact I do it, I'm agreeing in my inner self that the law is good. I'm affirming its goodness. I just can't do it, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, and then he says, as it is, Right. Okay. So as it is, like, if that's the case, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Okay. That's the distinction. So he's, he, so he's actually distinguishing between his, his essential being and this mm-hmm. other thing called sin living in me that he'll also call the flesh. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's indwelling sin and there's the flesh and they're closely related. Okay. So inside of him, there is something that is there almost like the Holy Spirit. Like it's not essentially him. He could exist without it, but he has never experienced existing without it. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like a law. It's always been there. It feels like it'll always be there. 
And so indwelling sin is there, but he himself doesn't want anything to do with it. And yet he can't get free of it. He can't overcome it psychologically, right? So then verse 18 says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. So in the thing that's driving him and controlling him, there's no good in there. He has no alternative principle right now. He has nothing that can overcome this thing, the sinful nature of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's nothing in him that dwells already that can cause the essential him to overcome this control that he's experiencing from this thing called the indwelling sin, right? First, and then he says, for I have the desire, see there's that word again, thalo, for I wish I desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do, I do not want to do. So there's the same word again, thalo, thalo. I don't wish to do it, but I don't wish to do this. I keep on doing. Now, if I don't, if I do what I do not want or desire to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. So he's actually making a really formal distinction now. He's saying these, like there is a me and there is a indwelling sin and they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Literally, when I do that wrong thing, if my heart is for God in a way, sin dwelling in me still does it. But he doesn't, he's not comforted by that. Like, cause he could say, right. so don't you see that after you believe in Jesus, if you still sin all the time and you, you live in the sinful nature and in the flesh and you live a life unto death, it's really not, that's really not you, the real you. Mm-hmm. And you see this with like um, Theodore Dalrymple writes about this in like, in his books, in, in like life at the bottom. And so when he talks about the, um, the, a person who stabs another person, they refer to the the stabbing as the knife went in. Like it was like mm-hmm. I didn't push it into the other person. Right? Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't stab him. The knife went in. Like you could see a certain kind of theologian could go that direction and say, you know, that because the sin living in me is what's doing it, I'm not responsible for these things. God wouldn't condemn me for them, and it's really not that big a deal that I overcome them because it really isn't me. Right, And then maybe when Christ returns or when I'm raised from the dead, or at some point, God will take this part out of me. But until mm-hmm. then, I'm not responsible for it. But that is not what the apostle says. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So yes. that, that's why then he goes into verse 21. And he, he, he tries to bring this to a conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the law I find at work. Although I want to do good, there's that word desire again. As I desire to do good, evil is right there with me. For in, And now he gives a specific title to this internal will. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Mm-hmm. So there's a part of him, his true consciousness, he feels that mm-hmm. del- isn't just isn't just like neutral. He delights in God's law. He says, "But I see another law at work in me, waging war against my the law of my mind." That's that same thing as the inner being he's just spoken of, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So he's saying there is a decisive winner here. Mm-hmm. So he's saying I have an inner being that's my true consciousness. It's the law of my mind, let's say, right? And he's saying it delights in God's law. It wants to delight in God's law. And what he says is it is that is decisively not enough to be a conqueror. Mm-hmm. So if anybody thinks that you can just believe in Jesus and and realize that God's way is right and think that that's going to be enough, for you to overcome the wretchedness of indwelling sin and to mm-hmm. be a conqueror in Christ, that is wrong. You do mm-hmm. not understand the gospel. You will be right here where he is, right? And so mm-hmm. he says in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will mm-hmm. rescue me from this body of death, right? 
And then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he's saying, I'm about to tell you an answer. There is an answer. That answer mm-hmm. is specifically related to Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? But to summarize what I've just said, he, he ends with this. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature or the flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. So mm-hmm. there's this dichotomy where in his mind, he wants to be God's in his flesh. He's dominated by sin. He's made its captive and it's making war inside of him. He's in a state of wretchedness, but there is a way to be delivered through Jesus Christ, his Lord, right? That's where mm-hmm. he ends chapter seven. And that is the context of chapter eight. Chapter eight is the solution to that problem. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand that problem, and if you don't feel that problem, and if you are not burdened by that problem, and if you don't feel like you're being waged war against and being made a slave to something you hate so that you can't really live in the thing in which you delight, if you don't grapple with that and feel terrorized by it and really feel like you're in a state of weakness and damnability, real wretchedness, you will not glory and enjoy and delight in what Romans 8 has to say. And you won't take it in very deeply. You won't apply it very consistently and you won't experience mm-hmm. what it feels like to conquer in Christ mm-hmm. by his spirit. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice the word mind is used a couple of times in these last verses. That's the word he's going to use in chapter eight when he talks about the mind on the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life mm-hmm. and peace. So, mm-hmm. he, so he sees the place where the Holy Spirit comes in and creates a new conquering energy is in our consciousness, our mind, our conscience, in this inner place where we already delight in God, the Spirit's going to come in and empower that and break the control that the sinful nature has over it. And so give us the internal resources to be an overcomer. That's good. That's good. See, I think once you see all that, it has a very beautiful, very powerful, very clear yeah. message. The thing that is, the thing that feels like redundancy or lack of clarity in verses 14 to 25 mm-hmm. is the emphasis Paul's trying to give. He right. wants you to feel the terror of it. How, mm-hmm. what a horror it is to be a creature who delights in something beautiful and being dragged to your death by something else you can't overcome. It's the most horrible thing you could possibly yeah. imagine. He's playing out the condemnation. Like he he uses that word in chapter eight, verse one, and how we don't have condemnation in Christ Jesus. But the part of chapter seven before that, that's showing that war is showing the feeling of condemnation. Right. Right. And this isn't Mm -hmm. the same. This is not the same thing as in chapters two, three, and four, where the issue is our damnability under the guilt of sin. Mm-hmm. And how a, we need a righteousness that's not our own, and that that righteousness is supplied apart from the law through Christ. This is a different problem. This is once you realize that God's law is beautiful and you want to live in that righteousness and you want it to be really who you are, you realize even if you've received a foreign righteousness that Jesus gave you, you're still not that person and you can, you'll mm-hmm. never be that person. And you want to be, even if inside your heart, you absolutely delight in the beauty of all that God has done and said it is you will never, ever be free and strong enough to be that person. And it Mm -hmm. is the experience and the character nature and the bondage of that that is the thing that this is dealing with. It's a second horror. Mm -hmm. So as you go through Romans, there's the first horror of realizing how sinful you are before God and how damnable you are in terms of your guilt. And you're like, oh my God, you should kill me. 
and throw mm-hmm. me in a, some something like a hell forever. And then mm-hmm. it says, then it says, that, no, there is a righteousness apart from law supplied in the death of Jesus Christ that you can receive by faith. And so you believe in justification. Oh my God. I, yes, God. Yes, God. And you believe in it. But then you believe in it and then you realize it hasn't, it, you, you are still a slave to indwelling sin. You're free from the penalty of sin, but you're still mm-hmm. slave to indwelling sin. And justification doesn't save you from that. Mm-hmm. You can delight in God's law. You can delight in what he's even done in Christ, but but it doesn't change the fact that you're a, still a slave. And until you realize that you need the spirit to transform you from the inside out and renew your mind from within, and the spirit is one of the things that Jesus Christ's death and justification give you, it is in believing and appropriating that that makes you free of the experience of being a slave to sin. And that is just mm-hmm. as big a revelation, just as great a glory as being justified. Mm-hmm. And to that together with even other, th- other glories that later that are later exposed is altogether salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. And we'll get into m- more into Romans eight next time, next week. Yes. Um, and if you want to see the breakdown and all the details of how to, do a devotional on Romans 7, like breaking out this, the sentence structure, noticing details, things like that. You can check out the devotional drills videos on our YouTube channel. Yeah, I'm trying to make those more interesting. So far, I have not been very good. So you'll have, to, you'll have to be patient and motivated to get what's in them. They're perfectly competent. You can learn a lot from them, but there you, they are 28 minutes long and stuff. So mm-hmm. you can always on YouTube, you can download the thing that lets you speed up videos and you can watch <laughs> them faster and yeah. don't, you, you're not going to hurt my feelings. You can also have your journal open and your Bible open and do it yourself mm-hmm. along with Nick. And then you're doing your devotional. Yep. So, yep. All right. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. See you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.